Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Vobis Dude podcast. We're here today with Melissa Angel. She is an environmental communicator originally from the United States and now living in Germany. Uh, Melissa, can you fill in any gaps in that introduction? That is me in a nutshell. <laughs> from you. the United States, now living in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> where where yeah. are you? Are you from actually? I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, which is in northern Florida. So oftentimes when I say I'm from Florida, people go, oh, Miami. Um, <laughs> but the capital of Florida is actually Tallahassee, and people are all often surprised by that as well. So I grew up there, and my dad was in the Air Force, and so we actually moved to Germany when I was about three. And we were in Germany from when I was about three years old to five or six years old, and then um, moved back to the US and I've also lived in California, just north of San Francisco, actually where a lot of the fires are right now. But what brought you to Germany the second, second round, the second time? Yeah, so it's actually my third time. Okay, third time. <laughs> so when I was a master's student, I, I went to Florida State University and I was studying basically like communications, but my key focus was climate change communications and documentary filmmaking. And I knew I wanted some kind of internship that could marry the two things, but then also I'd get a broader perspective on international policy and climate change. And so I just went on Google and searched climate change internships and as, as one does, yes, yes. <laughs> and um, what popped up was the UN Climate Change Secretariat, which is actually where we met Michael. Yes. <laughs> um, and I applied thinking I wouldn't get the internship and all of a sudden I did. And so I flew to Bonn, Germany. I interned with the UN Climate Change Secretariat for about six months. And then I flew back to the US and they actually kept me on contract uh, for some years after that. And then one day they were like, we need you again. And so I was living in California at the time. So went right back and I've actually been here ever since. <laughs> so that was about, yeah, it was about two and a half years ago. And just to backtrack for a second, have you always been into nature, the outdoors? Oh gosh. Yeah, I think as kids, it's your, it's, it's, you're, it's like an inherent thing. You're, you're, you're into nature because it's fascinating. It's new. Um, you, you find the bugs on the leaves. You're digging in the mud. It's not something to be afraid of. And so I've always been interested in nature in that aspect. Um, I was actually never one of those kids that went camping growing up or hiking in the forest with my parents. I tended to be more of the stay at home, be on the computer, like <laughs> kind of person um but it's such a hard question because it, it's like you're just in nature you're in you're 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 going outside all the time it's, it's all around you and so it's hard to be like yeah i'm into nature um just because i'm i'm a part of it that's just that's just a fact and i think when you're a part of something and it's all around you it's you want to protect it and so um, when I saw, I, I saw the impacts of climate change when I was in, living in Florida because I lived about 30 minutes away from the coast. And I was working for the government as well and I was seeing how the government in Florida was trying to cover up climate change. It's not a real thing. Sustainability, we can't say that um, in any policy documents. And 
so I knew I just had to do something about it. I had to change the way that people see nature, change the way people see climate change, um, rewrite the story. So yeah, I guess you could say I'm into nature. Cool, cool. And and when you worked for the government in Florida, was that before you came over to Bonn for UN climate change? Yes. Uh, so I worked for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Department. Uh, it's a state department. And I also worked for a water management district, which manages all the water resources in Florida. So this is anything from rivers to lakes to streams, swamps. And I was always doing communications work. And working in that space, working with scientists and seeing the disconnect between the science and then a lot of the people who work at the top, a lot of the politicians, and how much information the public doesn't actually receive from a lot of these governmental agencies um, really led me to do this, to, to, to try and seek like ways to do this type of work, to, to seek different ways to do it, different ways of communication. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like it was already, maybe the word climate change was already politicized back, even back then? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember sitting in my office at the water management district and sending an email to uh, one of the heads of the district and saying something like, I, I received some sort of document that was saying that humans were contributing to uh, erosion of a spring bank. Mm -hmm. um, and it was from a scientist. And so the scientist was recommending that we put up signs um, and so I emailed the head of the agency and said something like, humans are <laughs> contributing to the erosion of these spring banks and, and that's not good for the springs, it's not good for the animals living in the springs. And I think we should put out a, a message or a statement this summer, um, just alerting people to the fact. And instead of writing me back, the head of the district, he was like, okay, you just need to come to my office and we need to have a conversation. Because if he were to write me an answer in the email, then anyone could access it under the Sunshine Law, which is a, a Florida law where anyone can access public documents. And so there was a lot of just come to my office, let's just sit, talk about it on the phone, let's talk about it out in the hallway um, to keep a lot of information away from the public. And I don't really remember like what his motive was and why he didn't want people to know that them swimming in the springs was, you know, was a, I guess he was just like, he was trying to keep tourism up mm -hmm. in the area. And so if you tell people they can't go swimming in the springs because them stepping on the banks is contributing to erosion and that's then contributing to the spring being unhealthy, then that's not good for the profit or the economic profit. Mm -hmm of the tourism industry. I'm, and so it's just, it was just stuff like that, that mm -hmm. <laughs> just really got to me. Totally, totally. And what was your experience like working at uh, UN Climate Change back, back when you interned and then maybe, maybe also when you worked on contract? It was a life-changing experience. I was amazed at how much trust is actually put into the interns that come into the organization and how much work the things are actually given, uh, which of course I was very happy to do. Um, I was happy to just be working all the time. I didn't know anybody in Bonn, Germany. I didn't have a really great social scene. And so I was, I was happy to just dig in to the work. So I guess you're asking me what... Maybe what, what kind of things did you do as an intern? And then also any projects you worked on? Any conferences that 
yeah. people might know about? When I was working for the UNFCCC, I worked on a project called Momentum for Change, which spotlighted projects all around the world. And when I say projects, I don't mean just like local community projects, which are super important. But these are also projects that are run by corporations like Microsoft or Ikea. And so we would highlight these projects and we would highlight them at the UN climate change conferences and they'd get a lot of exposure. So it was fantastic to see like the head of the sustainability initiative of Microsoft on the same stage as a farmer in Cameroon. And so that's what then led me to the work that I'm doing now. I realized that we need to get different kinds of people on stage. We need to spotlight the CEOs and we need to spotlight the farmers and we need to put them on the same stage and we need to get them to have a conversation with each other. And so what I do now is I work at the Global Landscapes Forum and that's exactly the kind of work that we're doing. All right, let's go into Global Landscapes Forum first before we yeah. um, talk about these conversations. But like, what, what is this organization? Uh, what are the goals? And yeah. So the Global Landscapes Forum is a network of networks. That's how I like to explain it. That's my elevator pitch. Because it's, it's like you can't, you can't just say like the Global Landscapes Forum is X, Y, and Z, and then that's the end of the conversation. It's a platform where anyone who is working in restoration, working in indigenous rights, sustainable finance, food and livelihoods, measuring progress can come together and can share knowledge. And we have so many different ways that people can share knowledge. They can do it at our events, which used to be in-person events, but we've now switched mm -hmm. to fully digital. They can do it in a communities of practice, which is basically like a Reddit thread uh, where people can share videos, links, um, opinions, and they can find funding, and they all do this on a platform um, called GLFX. Um, they can read our news site called Landscape News and just see what's happening all around the world in relation to ecological restoration. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's a network of networks. Cool. And, and just to touch back on this, having conversations with people from different backgrounds, how, how can you facilitate an open conversation? Like what's important to keep in mind when kind of setting up the stage or the platform or the panel where people from different places or backgrounds will be speaking with each other? Yeah, sure. We do a lot of uh, work. So, so, okay, here's an example. You joined us at our GLF Bond Digital Conference and mm -hmm. we're running the virtual mangrove tour session. We, as you remember, we had to do a lot of work beforehand. Yeah. So we were having calls, we were sending emails, I was sending information on this is what it's going to be like, here's how you can light your background, blah, blah, blah. So we do that with all of our speakers as well. Um, if we know that we're going to have the CEO of Salesforce and the head of a, a women's cooperative in Uganda on the same panel, we actually introduce them beforehand and we get them talking already so that they're not coming into this blindly. They're not going to be insensitive uh, or say anything that yeah, is insensitive mm -hmm. to the other person. And we don't want to put anyone on the spot or, or make anyone feel like they don't know what's going on. And so there's a lot of preparation that goes into uh, these digital conferences and especially that goes into making sure people are comfortable speaking to each other. There were definitely some big names and influential figures in that conference. Was it difficult to 
get some of these people on board or get in contact with some of these people who might get contacted all the time? I think Jane Goodall was the most difficult I can imagine. to get in contact with. Uh, my colleague had the job of, of trying to uh, get her to, to speak at our conference and she succeeded in the final hours. I can, you know, I can also imagine Jane Goodall is a, a force, is yeah. not someone you can just call up on the phone and, hey, will you speak at our conference? Sure, no biggie. <laughs> Love to. But we need, we need those big names in order to draw in people to the conference so that they can see the other actors on the ground. What we would say aren't the huge influential figures, but are the people that are actually growing our food or are experiencing firsthand the effects of climate change. And so without Jane Goodall, then we don't get the 5,000 people in the conference digital platform. Okay, and I want to talk about some more challenges from this conference. I remember on the maybe the first live feed, there were some skips and, and some like, I guess, timing adjustments that had to be made. Was it, was it chaos behind the scenes? Was it controlled chaos? What, what were the adjustments like um, behind the scenes? Sure. So first I'll, I'll just start off because I realized I didn't actually explain what the conference was. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. Um, at the beginning of June, the Global Landscapes Forum held a digital conference, and it was our first 100% digital conference ever. And we were actually already planning on doing a digital conference back last year. And then COVID hit, and we were already planning on this 100% digital conference. So there wasn't really anything that we needed to change or adjust on. And so it was a weird coincidence that, that, that this, this happened. Um, but the conference, the theme was food and livelihoods, and it was us taking a look at food in the time of crises. So there's the crises of biodiversity, climate change, global health pandemics, economic. And so it was looking at food and livelihoods within this lens. So we brought together 5,000 people online for three days, and we ended up reaching, I think, 50 million people on social media it was maybe about 30 of us working on this conference behind the scenes. And so if you can imagine being at a physical conference and running around, checking on people, like going into rooms and being like, hey, do you have this? Is the speaker okay? Or hey, the session's about to start. Put that now online in different Zoom rooms. So that was me is I was just moving between different Zoom links. I'd pop up in a room and there would be the head of, oh no, there'd be an Indonesian minister <laughs> and uh, one of our colleagues. I'm like, hi, I'm Melissa. I'm the communications coordinator. Just checking to make sure everything's okay. Do you have everything you need? If this was a physical conference. Maybe I would offer them a cup of coffee, yeah. but we couldn't do this. So this was the closest we could get. There was a lot of, um, all caps uh, messaging that was happening on Slack, which is the uh, chat platform we were using to coordinate this conference. And so if like a speaker wasn't there, there'd be all caps, oh my God, the speaker isn't there, what's happening? And lots of like pulling hair and Zoom calls. And uh, it was, I'm so happy that no one saw the behind the scenes. Although actually sometimes our tech team would mysteriously appear in sessions. <laughs> All of a sudden there'd be wig at our webmaster just like on a panel 
So like, he had to look good just in case. Yeah. yeah, and he was like, oh no, <laughs> and then would close the screen. So it was definitely a learning experience. Um, and we're about to have our next conference on um, biodiversity, October mm -hmm. 28th and 29th. Okay. Um, we're going to be opening the platform earlier and actually having more opportunities for people to do documentary screenings or to join meetups or to just do whatever they want. And so we're hoping to get a little bit more engagement this time around. Just quick add on, did you, how much sleep did you get during this three day, the initial three day conference? I think I got maybe a total of eight hours over the three days. That's I tough. was, when you're working with all the different time zones of the world, it's, you can't sleep. And I'm the communications coordinator, so I'm, I'm working with journalists as well. Mm. I was up at 5 a.m., I was in my pajamas and I'm talking to a BBC reporter. Mm. <laughs> like, in what world could you do that, like, pre-COVID? Like, there, you couldn't do that. I mean, you could, I guess, but it's weirdly more acceptable now in this COVID world to work more, yeah. um, to be, I mean, I'm talking to you, Michael, right now. My hair is a mess. I've got a sweater on. It looks great. It looks Thanks. great. Thanks. Um, but I don't need to like really work on like making myself look presentable, although except if I'm in maybe a meeting with a, a minister, like a, a head of a communications of a larger organization, but most people mm -hmm. are pretty chill. I had a, had a call with the director of a, a fund the other day and her and I were both in like yoga outfits and it was actually something that we could chat about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but to answer your question, I didn't get any sleep and I wouldn't change that because it was such an exciting event. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised there. Traditionally, like I, now that we're talking about this interaction, this networking, traditionally, a lot of people do cite networking opportunities as the, the big plus of attending a live event. So I think I remember a couple methods of doing this within the G GLF conference, but could you go over some of the ways you facilitated conversations and networking opportunities online for people at this, at this past event? Sure. So we used a platform called Whova. That's W-H-O-V-A. Apparently it's pronounced 500 different ways. Yeah. Whova, Wahova, Wava. Um, yeah. Choose whichever one you want. <laughs> it's spelled W-H-O-V-A. I say Whova. Um, but it was actually, it turned out to be a really good platform for us. And it's something that we're going to use again for GLF biodiversity. Within the platform, there are virtual networking opportunities that you can set up on your own. And so participants can go in and they can start a networking room. Or GLF can actually do facilitated networking where we pair people together and you get paired. You have a conversation digitally for a minute and then you go off and you do the next one. So it's kind of like speed networking at an at a in-person conference but we were able to do it digitally, which I think is kind of fun because you're sitting at your computer screen and this isn't chat roulette. Like <laughs> that's what I'm thinking people, of. Yeah. These are people who paid for the conference. And so you're not going to see anything weird popping up on your screen. And if people did see anything weird or were being harassed or bullied, we had a um, email that was being monitored 24 seven that people could, could go to. Well, luckily we didn't have any issues whatsoever, which was amazing. 
the community, the Global Landscapes Forum community is, is so respectful. It's, it's one of the joys of working for this organization. But yeah, so we had facilitated networking. We had networking that participants could do themselves. We had at every session, we had a question and answer portion, like a, a text box basically, where you could write your question and people could upvote your question, much like similar to Reddit. And then we had a chat box going. And so at the end of each session, there'd be time for questions. And this is when our participants got to shine. Because usually our participants are the ones just like in the background watching. Mm -hmm. Many of them have questions. And at an in-person conference, they'd raise their hand. Yeah. Um, but here, it, it was it, we had to do it a bit differently. I still prefer in-person mm -hmm. interaction when it comes to question and answer sessions. But I think this is something that we could train uh, this is a learning moment. I think that our moderators and our MCs need some additional training to really make sure they're saying, Michael Dew from mm -hmm. Germany is asking this question. Do you imagine more environmental organizations, NGOs, nonprofits holding virtual conferences? Do you see this happening for even bigger organizations like perhaps UN Climate Change or, or UNEP in the future? Um, is this a possibility in your mind? Yeah, so I think a lot of organizations had to scramble mm -hmm. when COVID hit. This year, we were supposed to have a climate change conference. We were supposed to have a UN Biodiversity Summit. These are major conferences that make a huge impact on policy shift. Luckily, we'll still have a UN Bi Biodiversity Summit um, that'll be held virtually. And I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work. But if we could take some pointers from how uh, the Democratic National Convention held, held their event digitally, I'd imagine it'd be something similar to that. But unfortunately, the very, very important UN climate change conference was canceled and moved to next year. I'm hoping next year that if it has to be held virtually that the organizers can come up with something that will still allow civil society to participate. I just know that it's very sensitive when you're bringing policymakers together on a virtual platform. I mean, there's so much potential for sensitive information to be leaked. And so that's why in-person events are so important, even though the environmental cost of flying policymakers across the world, it's not, it, the cost is high. Yeah. Um, I think it's important for these policymakers to have face-to-face -face conversations. But the really cool thing about hosting the GLF Bond Digital Conference back in June is GLF was kind of the leader in the environmental space on these types of events. And we've been receiving a lot of requests from leading development organizations around the world to give them presentations, to share our tips and tricks, our secrets. Um, and of course, we're open to sharing because why would we keep that to ourselves when more and more people could join in the conversation and learn how mm -hmm. to save the world, protect biodiversity, stop climate change? Solid, very solid. I think I remember seeing a, a picture of the person who was coordinating the Democratic National Convention from his living room. It was like one person, so many screens just clicking away, mixing video mixing on, on the go. Yeah, and so our uh, technical team and our web team is actually in Indonesia. Yeah. And we have several pictures of them from behind the scenes with just screams. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I just can't even imagine how difficult it must have been for them to to keep their heads straight. Nothing like live TV or live stream now yeah. as, as we're doing it. Um, you So you've been working in in a couple different organizations uh, for environmental or climate change causes over the years now. Um, can you name any significant changes that you've seen in the way people talk about the environment, aside from this, this switch to digital conferences that we're seeing now? The best shift that I've seen is this youth movement, is the Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion, which I wouldn't categorize as a youth movement. Mm -hmm. But that has really brought to the fore the issues. And if it's, it's just shown that when youth are on board, it makes policy and uh, policymakers and leaders listen. I mean, Greta Thunberg just completely just changed the game on how we communicate climate change. She says it like it is. She, yeah, shows her emotions. She's speaking in front of leaders and, and shaking her finger at them. And that's such a powerful image. And so we didn't have this, back when I was doing communications for, uh, I, I worked for governments, I worked for universities, I worked for um, other nonprofits. We didn't have this, this leader, this figurehead for the youth movement. And since then we've had other figures pop up from different countries. We have Vanessa Nakate from Uganda, for instance, the famous one who was cut out of the picture. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, there were four, climate activists, all women who attended, I believe it was Davos. Um, Sometime this, this past year, right? This past year. And Vanessa Nakate is from Uganda and she's black. And yeah. the AP photographer cut her out of the picture, cropped her out. Yeah. And so you just see the three white activists. And that was huge, like- Yeah, that blew up. Blew up, media outroar. And since then, Vanessa Nakate has gotten huge. We actually got her to speak at GLF Bonn. But that was, that's really the major shift that I've seen in how we communicate climate change was just youth have really just taken it on and just run with it. And actually, I, I'm still considered youth. I'm, I'm under 35. And so GLF categorizes youth <laughs> as 18 to 35. And so I could be considered also a part of this movement. But these are like, I'm talking about the eight-year-olds the 12 year olds, the 14 year olds that are having yeah. major speaking events at event, at major speaking events at conferences. And, and they're marching the streets all, all around the world. Even here in, in Munich, I've seen uh, these Fridays for Future marches and it's a lot of youth, a lot of, a lot of old people as well, which is, it's nice to see these generations coming together um, for this common well, I, cause. I think it really harkens back to the 1960s and 70s when the environment well the environmental movement really I think started at the end of the 1970s and mm -hmm. like carried through into the 80s but I think it reminds the older generation of that activism that used to happen yeah. in the 60s and 70s around the Vietnam War around uh, gender and so it's it's really amazing to see these two groups come together. Very solid. Don't know quite how to transition to this one but you hear a lot about America all over the news nowadays. Um, and maybe some people who are Americans living abroad are trying to distance themselves from being American. But I would like to ask you, is there any one thing that you miss about America, be it cultural, be it food, be it your friends and family? Oh, gosh. Yeah, complete gear shift over here. No, no, no. But <laughs> 
this is such a, this is actually something I think about often. I'm still learning German. Technically, I don't have to learn German. I could go, I could walk anywhere in Bonn and start speaking English to somebody and 95% of the time they'd speak English back to me. But there's this weird part of me that thinks that I'm living in Germany, I'm living in someone else's country, I should learn their language. And I think I'd want to do that with any country that I live in. But I do miss the ease of just being able to <laughs> walk into a grocery store or a restaurant and just start using English and not feel bad about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so that is definitely one thing I miss is the ease of, of language. Uh, living here can sometimes be a bit of a challenge when it comes to that because I want to use German, but I find I'm not as confident in it as I wish I could be. I miss the food. Oh my goodness. The food. I don't know why, but it just tastes different in the U.S. It just tastes like fresher and more vibrant. And I don't know why. And maybe that's just my bias because I grew up there. It could be the salt, the sugar. You know, yeah, I don't know what it is. Yeah. yeah, but I, I, there is, I, maybe it, I need to go visit more places like Hamburg and Berlin, and I don't know if Munich has more vegan restaurants um, with more creative dishes, though, not just like a piece of bread with some avocado on it, some tomatoes, and that's your vegan dish. Here it is. Mm -hmm. But something that's actually taking classic dishes like shrimp and grits and making it vegan. And so in Germany, I don't know what that would be. Like what's a, like schnitzel? Like making a vegan schnitzel. There's definitely vegan schnitzel. I think Berlin is your place to go. Yeah. If you're, if you're looking for a lot of different vegan options that are creative and flavorful. Yeah, I've been trying to be vegan on and off now for so long. Um, but for some reason, it's been difficult in Bonn. I don't think there are as many vegan options. And if there are, they're just so basic. And I just... I'm like so tired of curry. I love curry. But don't give me a basic curry. Like give me something like spicy, something that's gonna like make me sweat and that just pops in my mouth. Like that's the kind of flavors that I miss. So you are a spice queen. I love spices. I brought back five bottles of hot sauce from the US. Okay. Back what's, in January. What's your go-to hot sauce? Oh wait, let me go grab it. Oh wait, no, no, I know, I know, I know. It's called Valentina. Okay, yeah, I know Valentina. Love Valentina. And I actually started ordering it online um, just because I can't live without it. Whenever I make burritos, I have to just drizzle everything in Valentina. Now we're getting hungry, but... I know. Um, <laughs> it's almost... I've got maybe about an hour and a half until dinner time. Okay. I can start about dinner. Same, same here. Uh, let's move to the personality questions now that we're talking about hot sauce and all these good yeah. things. What is an unusual habit that you do or an absurd thing that you love? Unusual habit? That's so hard to answer because <laughs> it, it's usually someone else that has to point it out, right? Yeah, like, I mean, you could ask if, if, we, if we can. Or what was the other one? Or an absurd thing that you love. Absurd. Every single morning, I, before I even get out of bed, I have to do the New York Times crossword. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why. It's a weird thing. If I don't do the New York Times crossword in the morning, the rest of my day is wrecked. Awesome. Let's, 
let's jump to the next one. So I've seen you on Instagram and in other places playing that banjo of yours yes. from time to time. And most young people I know they, they play the piano, the guitar, or drums, or probably have a DJ mixer as their instrument of choice. Have you had any interesting or unique experiences that have come up as a result of you playing the banjo as opposed to having a keyboard or something? Yeah, so I started playing the banjo when I was 15 years old. And when you're 15, maybe your ideal weekend is going out with friends, seeing a movie, going and catching a, a concert. But I was often uh, playing my banjo at bars for like 60-year-old <laughs> men and women um, in my all-girls bluegrass band. Or I was uh, getting in the car and, and, and driving off to folk festivals to perform. Again, the age range is upper 50s. And so I, a lot of my friends and my mentors were, were people, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s who had been in the bluegrass scene. So bluegrass is the style of banjo that I play. Um, and so maybe you could say I didn't have a typical childhood. And it's, it's interesting because when I moved, since I've moved to Germany, I sort of have been catching up on a lot of those things. I've been really going to more shows. I mean, of course, this was all pre-COVID, but I've been going to more concerts. I've been like partying like I never have before. Like I, in college, I didn't party. I uh -huh. studied and played banjo. <laughs> I didn't know this part. <laughs> yeah, and so I had some I had some developmental issues in that <laughs> arena. <laughs> and so I was a late bloomer when it came to how to be a young person. Um, and I think I'm still learning. And maybe finally when I hit 35, I'll get it, but then I won't be a young person anymore. Yeah, I think the banjo is, is a good developmental instrument. Yeah, you should um you should play some like banjo clips in the podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like it, that could be your transition is the banjo going ding, 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 ding. I do so. need an intro. So <laughs> I need an intro and an outro because usually I've just been saying like, hi, welcome, goodbye. <laughs> That'd be it. But yeah. Imagine your podcast starting with ding, 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 ding. <laughs> that can set the tone for whoever the guest is. I think people would be like, what is that? <laughs> Why? Oh. Let's switch over to the past five years, okay? So okay. during this time period, what new belief, behavior, or habit, again, has had a direct impact on your life? Oh, getting my dog Morby. I guess it's not a belief or a habit. It's a behavior. You behavior. In April, I adopted a dog from the Vaughn Animal Shelter, and he is two years old, and his name was Mortzi, which means little bear in Hungarian, because he was transferred from a Hungarian animal shelter to the Vaughn Animal Shelter. But I decided to name him after one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Kevin Morby. He has just become this very solid part of my life, like something that's always there and something that I have to take care of and consider um, whenever I'm going and doing anything. And so my life has changed a lot, but it's changed a lot for the better. And it's great having a little companion to go on walks with you. I used, 
I would never have gone for a walk in the morning and in the evening ever, mm-hmm. like before getting Morby. But now I'm, I'm outside and I live on a, a mountain, kind of hill mountain thing in Bonn. And then mm-hmm. right, right in my backyard is the cotton forest and there's trails and we just go walking in there every morning and any, every evening. That sounds yeah, really I, rewarding. It's super rewarding. And I would say it's actually helped my work life balance as well because I have to take care of him. I can't just like completely dig into work like I used to. I have to make sure he's okay. Does he need to use the bathroom? Is he hungry? Is he thirsty? So. What kind of dog is he by the way? So I think that he is a Puli mix. And so Puli is, that's P-U-L-I. It's a Hungarian sheep dog. Shaggy or? Yeah, he's shaggy and curly and his hair is kind of coarse but maybe I can share a picture with you. Sure, sure. Uh, sorry, I was just picturing your dog for a second. Now, <laughs> now, now I have to get back on track. Um, speaking of companions, your next task is to rob a bank, okay? Okay. And you're oh going God. to pick three people to help you do this and explain why you chose these three accomplices to help you rob your bank. Or not your bank, but a bank. Okay. So my first accomplice is Barack Obama, because I know he'll distract everybody while I'm robbing the bank. And so he'll like just stand outside and just like everyone be like, oh my God, it's Barack Obama. And I'll also take one of his secret service agents to help me like get through like all of the, I don't know, the... <laughs> like what is in a bank? I've never robbed a bank before. Maybe a security guard. Security, yeah, he'll help me like maybe be like Barack Obama wants to come in and use the bank, so we need to prepare it. And so he like talks to a security guard and and so and then perhaps I don't know, who you else? Have one like, more. <laughs> you you have one, one more? more? Maybe someone that I just really just genuinely want to meet. Uh <laughs> <laughs> And then we could like just have a chat while we're like robbing the bank. I don't know. Well, maybe I take Morby because he perhaps needs a walk as well, and he lo- he'll love the excitement. Very so convenient. Barack Obama, one of his secret service agents, and Morby. And then I'll rob the bank, and then probably give it to back to the bank because I'm really bad <laughs> when it comes to that. I mean, if I had to give it away, I'd give it to some sort of restoration project. You're the first person to talk about what you would do with the money after. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. And the first person to bring a dog along. Yeah. You know, sometimes like if someone's trying to shoot me, like, well, no, she's robbing a bank. We need to shoot her. Then maybe they're a dog lover and they see Morby and they're like, oh no, what if it hits the dog? Because some people tend to love animals more than they love humans. Okay. Yeah. True. True. That that (laughs) was a multifaceted answer. Really, really appreciate it. (laughs) I'd be interested to hear what the other answers are. You should do a, a, a list article. Oh, I can, I can do that. <laughs> Definitely do that. For our last personality question, you have the world as your Twitter or Instagram, choose whatever social media platform you want, but you have the entire world as your following for one post. What is your message to everybody everywhere? And why is this your message? So this is actually, this is a very good question. And I, said, I know I've said that to a few other questions, but I'm torn because a part of me wants to say something really profound, you know, that'll get people thinking. 
But then the other part of me is I'm the communications coordinator of an organization and I'm trying to raise awareness about my, about our digital event that's coming up. <laughs> so actually in all honesty, if I knew that I was sending out a Twitter message and everyone was going to see it, I'd be like, join GLF Biodiversity Digital Conference, One World, One Health on the 28th to 29th of October, 2020. <laughs> Okay. That, like truly, and it helped me so much with my key performance indicators. Yeah, sure. If that also answers the next question, which would be where people can go to learn more about Global Landscapes Forum or Melissa Angel. Ah, yeah. So if, if anyone's interested in seeing what we're doing, um, they can go to www.globallandscapesforum.org. Okay, everybody. And if that's... they want to see what I'm doing, yeah. I guess that's where you go because that's that's what I'm doing um, and everything you see there I have a hand in. It's a really fun team to work with. Cool. All right. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have a chance give the podcast a rating on whichever uh, platform that you're listening on and thank you so much Melissa. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Cool. Talk to you guys soon. <laughs>